it's definitely one of those trust the process moments in your life. You know, not, nothing is linear and finance, like everything else <laughs> will, will reflect that. So the first time we broke, you know, the, the two comma club and, and, uh, sorry. Yeah. The two comma club, we were, I was ecstatic over the moon. I, I thought I had it all figured out and then the market corrected a little bit and I was like, ah, okay, back to the drawing board. And it was definitely a little bit of reflection, but that's not a bad thing at all. Uh, how I run my finances, uh, there is a little bit of exposure to the market and it ebbs and it flows. And you just have to know that you have to trust the process. I thought I was, you know, the bee's knees driving around, you know, in an Audi and, and really I was just acting the fool. Welcome millionaires and future millionaires. You're listening to the Millionaires Unveiled podcast, the show where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their portfolio allocation. Now to your host, Jace Mattinson. Welcome back to another episode of the Millionaires Unveiled podcast. This is episode number 319. Stace, how's it going? Hey, hey, you know, actually, it's a it's a heavy week. Um, we did our intro for Monday last week. We did a little early. So before kind of recent events, and this is certainly not a political podcast, but um, I did do a study abroad in Israel in 2010, and it is near and dear to my heart. So I just uh, thought we'd be remiss if we didn't say before talking about things that are very first world, <laughs> uh first world issues um, that our hearts and prayers are with our um, friends in Israel and our Jewish friends and also um, really all families who are hurting at this time because we know this is a very complex issue. And um, anyway, just want everyone to know that every life is is important and we hope that um, in this house we're we're praying for for peace for all people. Yeah, and... uh... It's tough, tough seeing all the things take place and, and obviously dealing with the kind of terrorism that that we are dealing with. Uh, at any rate, uh, today we, we have a former military member on, so I appreciate all those who serve and protect our freedoms uh, in this country and abroad and, and uh, in various parts of the world. And we're going to get into his story about uh, him transitioning out of the military, which we also had uh, a recent service member on on this on this week's episode as well, and Casey. So great episode with him or with her, and going to be a great episode today with Tim. One thing to note uh, on Tim is he used to be a millionaire. In fact, he was upwards of one point two at one point, and then dropped below uh, a million actually. And that's kind of where he stands today. So I thought I'd release that. Uh, release it as in a Thursday episode. Uh, he'll probably be there in no time. Um, however, we have seen some some pretty recent uh, market volatility. Anyway, you know, one one of the things that's interesting, you know, is it is all these events take place in the world, whether it's Ukraine or Russia, now Israel. You know, what a, outside of uh, the things in, in, in humanity, uh, you know, how does it af- affect us and what affects us? And I think we can go back in history and, and, and look at those things and, and, and try to gain a better understanding and, and respect for, you know, all the world events and all the things that, that take place. But I, I get that, you know, some people 
Um, you know, especially if you haven't traveled outside this country, you know, just don't, um, you know, may not have an appreciation for some of the, some of the things that, uh, that we have in this country. And so, you know, as it relates to finances at a time will tell, and, you know, I think markets in general and, uh, you know, what takes place and how long it takes place and how, you know, massive or not massive it becomes, we'll, uh, we'll find out over the coming days and months and, and uh, hopefully we can get to a, a peaceful resolution quickly, though. So at any rate, let's get into the episode with Tim. Welcome to the Millionaires and Bell podcast. In the show, we have Tim. Tim, do you want to just give us a little about your background and what you're up to now? Hey, uh, thank you so much for having me on this. Uh, so I'm a, I'm a recently separated service member, spent 13 years in the military from enlisted to reserves to officer hopped out of that and joined or and became a information technology uh, healthcare project manager for a nonprofit. Uh, currently, I'm single, no kids. It's just me by my lonesome uh, trying to make my way forward with this. Um, normally, what I do is every place that the military moved me, uh, they paid me to buy a home. So I bought a home and I house hacked into that. And I was able to grow that over the course of, you know, around around a decade into we're just shy of a million dollars right now. Previously, I was at 1.2, but market volatility kind of kind of took that away from me. So we're on our way back. Okay. I want to get into a, a bunch of this. Uh, before we do, though, thank you for your service in the military. We all uh, definitely appreciate that. What is your net worth today? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Nope, just thank you for your support. So right now my net worth is $976,635. And that's split between equity and real estate, uh, stocks, and a little bit of uh, cash on hand and precious metals. Dang, so let's, let's, uh, let's dive into that in a second. Just under a million dollars, and you shared with us previously that you had been over that mark, and then with market correction had kind of come under, and now coming back up closer to that million dollar mark. So uh, before we get into the, the allocation, what has that little roller coaster been like for you as you've watched your net worth fluctuate as much as most of the country has you know, over the last couple of, uh, you know, call it several months here? Oh, it's definitely one of those trust the process moments in your life. You know, no, nothing is linear and finance, like everything else, <laughs> will will reflect that. So the first time we broke, you know, the the two comma club and, and uh, sorry, yeah, the two comma club, we were, I was ecstatic, over the moon. I, I thought I had it all figured out. And then the market corrected a little bit and I was like, ah, okay, back to the drawing board. And it was definitely a little bit of reflection, but that's not a bad thing at all. Uh, how I run my finances, uh, there is a little bit of exposure to the market and it ebbs and it flows. And you just have to know that you have to trust the process that you're going to be better off on the other side. Yeah, I appreciate you uh, sharing that. So let's dive into the allocation a little bit. How is and for all intents and purposes, nine seventy six. I'm rounding up to a million bucks right now. <laughs> By the time this releases, you'll probably be there anyway. A few more paychecks under your belt and and whatnot. So, how is how is the million dollars allocated? So the million dollars, I have around, I have around 
900,000 in, in uh, total invested assets with you know a little bit left with uh, cash on hand. Of that 900, it's like 940,000, uh, 900 of that is actually in real estate right now. Uh, if we were having this conversation six months ago, that would have been a wildly different number. Uh, but I have around $40,000 in stocks, and that's mostly in uh, my 401ks. And then $15,000 cash on hand. And what's left of that is either in a play money brokerage and uh, precious metals. I just started the pa- this past year to start buying gold just as another store of capital. Okay. So the real estate makes up a bulk of it. Is that single family homes and multi-family duplexes, fourplex? What's the kind of the makeup there? Mm, so they're actually all split based on its target market. Uh, when I was in the military and we were in the more single family friendly homes or single family market, I have, I purchased a few of them. And then when I was relocated to upstate New York, that's when I started purchasing multifamily. So right now I have three multifamily homes. I have three single family homes and a vacation home. And uh, each time I move, what I do is I house hack my home. So I'll either find a roommate or I find, or I spool up Airbnbs. So right now, the, the home I'm in, I have two Airbnbs and one roommate going from my one home. Uh, that way that can further cut out my expenses, which allows me to you know, uh, recharge my coffers that I call it in order to build up the appropriate amount of capital to put down another down payment, which kind of repeat the process. So house hacking has basically got you all this real estate then for the most part? Yep. It, it's gotten me all except for one of my real estate assets. And is the vacation it's, home, is that a short-term rental? Yes. Yeah, that, that one is a short-term rental. Um, right now, it's we haven't even started uh, to get it into uh, this season yet, but that, that's going to be the primary uh, vacation rental within the portfolio. So um, I want to dive into you. You mentioned you know being in the military, they they encourage you to buy property at each of the relocations. Yeah, could you could you open up about that a little bit? Yeah. Uh, so when you're in the military, if you're married, if there's too many too many personnel within the dormitories in the dormitories, or if you are an officer, you don't stay in the dorms or the barracks. So you have to live either in the base or off base within the local economy. And how the rules basically are are wrote is that when you do move out into the local economy, the military gives you what's known as basic allowance for housing, or BAH for short. And that is dependent upon how many dependents you have. So if you have a wife and a kid, you are given more money versus like me, I just had just my lonesome, so I had just a standard rate BAH. And that BAH is tied to your zip code along with your rank. So the higher your rank is, the more BAH you have. 
when you're in a higher cost of living area, the higher your BAH is. And whatever home that you can get, if it's under that BAH amount, so say it's $1,000. If you can find a place to rent or to buy, that's $500. Awesome. You get to pocket that. So early on, I realized that, hey, this can this could kind of be a thing. And so bought a duplex, lived in one side, house hacked another, uh, another side of it. And then within my unit, I even got a roommate. So at first my payment was like 1200 bucks. I was making 1200 bucks for, for BAH. Then the half of that unit, they paid me $900 in rent. So suddenly my $1,200 rent became 400 or sorry, 300. And then I put another roommate in there and they were paying me 400. So not only was I kind of living for free because BAH is tax-free income, but you don't count that into your overall, uh, your, your overall pay. But then I was also living for a profit because the home was producing a little bit of cash flow. Wow. So did you figure that out on the first property? Like, were you, like, what was the first property? Did you live on the barracks and then your rank moved up and you decided to live off barracks? Yep. Uh, so please correct me if I'm using the wrong term. No, no, it's all good. So yes, uh, I made it up to sergeant when I was enlisted and I was, I was allowed to move off base. Right then I bought a home with the, because I was listening to bigger pockets and all this, you know, all, all the fancy, all the fancy smart folk. And, you know, I am not a smart individual by any stretch of imagination. I, if, if I can do this, anyone can, but I bought a home duplex rented one side out and, and I realized that, Oh, this is actually not the most difficult thing in the world. Cause you hear it all the time where, Oh, you know, you're going to buy a home. You know, what happens when the roof blows off? What happens, you know, if your tenants, you know, don't want to leave and they become squatters. It's like, well, we have insurance for that. We have plans for that. So as long as you can make a plan and stick to it and make sure that, that you know, your plan's legal, so definitely run that by a lawyer, but as long as you have a halfway decent plan and the numbers check out, there's no reason why with a little bit of sweat, equity, and work effort, you can't succeed with this. So that was my mindset going into it. And it's been relatively, relatively good. So when, when you decided, when, when you decided to transition out of the military, did you decide to reduce the number of single family and consolidate in a multifamily or what was your tactic there? And obviously did it matter at that point that the military wasn't paying you this stipend to cover each of the properties? Mm -hmm. Like what happens when you leave the property and you move to property number two? Mm -hmm. Yep. So the entire, the entire strategy behind that is uh, with, with purchasing a home for a military service member, uh, you can use uh, what's known as the VA home loan, which is a zero money down uh, loan. So you can, like the first home I bought, they actually paid me $6,000. And I thought that was really cool to buy a home. And I thought more people should do this. But when you do leave, that's when you have to have your exit strategy in mind. So when you're running your numbers and you're analyzing your potential home that you're going to look at to live in temporarily, you have to run the numbers based on what you're projected rent would be when you move out and if that meets you know the one percent rule and the 50 percent rule and all these other you know silly guidelines if it meets those 
then you know that that this is a potentially good asset. So when you leave, because you know you're going to in the military, every three to five years, you're going somewhere new, you're deploying, going TDY, you're PCSing, which is permanent change station, to a new to a new base, you know, potentially across the world. So you already have to uh, have in mind what property management company you're going to use, who you like to work with, and then have that exit strategy lined up and ready to go. You move out, you sign your documents with the property management company, and they place a tenant in right behind you. And it's a very simple system that just feeds itself. Because when you move on to the next place, it's rinse and repeat. So, so when I left the military after bouncing around, I, I always saw it, uh, each buying a home kind of like planting a tree, right? I, you know, over 13 years, I've been putting these little seeds in the ground. And they were already profitable to begin with. But now it's, you know, I, I increased my rent like 2 to 3% per year. Uh, and, and over the past 13 years, that is, that's now starting to add up and you're starting to see the, the fruits of time. Because honestly, that's the biggest factor. So to answer your question, no, I don't, I, I don't see a need to sell my properties. And I haven't sold any property yet. Um, one that was, you know, kind of my problem child. I was thinking about doing that, um, especially when there was a squatter in there. But for the most part, they've been fantastic. And as long as they're cash flowing, there's no reason why I would, I would think to sell unless it's to, you know, utilize them or even potentially cross collateralize them into a larger commercial residential asset. Yeah. So that kind of leads me into the next phase. So now you're, you're a civilian again, you've got a, a, a good job. What is your strategy now that you have a W2 and, um, you know, you're not moving from place to place. Yeah. So that kind of, the, the the cool thing about the military is that it does bounce you from place to place, which is awesome in my opinion, because you know how they say that your stocks have to be diversified? Well, I'm also under the impression that your real estate portfolio should be diversified. If you have all of your assets in in a, in a town or a home or in a town or one very closely uh, populated city, and then typhoon hits or a blizzard hits and it just wipes them all out, you're, you're going to be hurting uh, for a little bit or, you know, the, the main employer pulls out. But if you have a geographically diversified portfolio in a typhoon or sorry, typhoon hurricane, if a hurricane hits and it takes out a third of your portfolio, yeah, you have insurance that's going to rebuild, they'll make it whole, but you'll still be experiencing cash flow because of, your other your other assets so there is built-in risk reduction with that for me i'm always a big believer in investing where i have an uncommon advantage and that means that uh, the places i've been and i've lived at because of the military well i know that area and i know how the military works so you so you have a system that's designed to help the service members, I can provide good housing to service members who need it, know the system to where they can they can still put a little bit of money of that BAH into their pocket. And I can still, you know, make enough money to support 
to support my portfolio. It's a win-win. So I'm basically going to be investing in the areas that I've been, which is predominantly along the East Coast. And how much cash flow did you say you have now from these properties? Um, so each property cash flows anywhere from six to twenty thousand dollars a year, depending on the property. The single family ones, they're they're in the they're in the four or the six to eight K range per year. Um, and, and that's more than fine for me. I'm I'm not I'm not looking to make every, you know to squeeze every last dime out of these things. Uh, and the reason for those because of the single families, I never get a call. In the past three years, I've gotten one call, and that was because of a <laughs> it was a an AC unit that froze. That was it. Versus the other multifamilies, those are a lot more hands on. Now they're a lot more profitable. Uh, the cash flow on those is you know fourteen to twenty thousand. Uh, per year, but I'm calling the property manager once every other three months. It's a lot more hands-on. It takes a lot more of my time. For me personally, I would much rather have a little bit more passive single-family than the cash flow in multifamilies. But for me, I think that a widely a widely diversified portfolio is a strength because. In my opinion, you should be comfortable being uncomfortable when you are investing. Obviously, invest in what you know, but also trying new things is not a bad thing. And and the ones you have the property management, how much how much do you have to pay them? Yeah, so my property managers are uh, they they take ten percent off the top. Okay. So when I'm looking at and running my numbers, when I'm looking at the real estate, running my numbers, I factor that in. That that's a must for me. I don't have time to be getting called, you know, two in the morning over squirrels in the attic. That's yeah. unfortunately not my call. So where do you go from here? I mean, are you, is there a certain number of doors or net worth that you're trying to get to? And, and does your strategy change at all? Are you going to continue to house hack your way there? Or what's the plan? Uh, so this is actually something that I've been thinking about a lot because I, I'm at a very crucial jun- uh, juncture uh, junction in my life because you know I did just get out of the military completely new lifestyle you know as a civilian and what I'm probably gonna do is just continue to invest in some of these smaller time smaller uh, I, I call them smaller time deals they're not really small time because you know for the, a majority of the population the home is the biggest purchase that they're ever going to make. Um, so I, I don't want to belittle buying a home, but small residential multifamily, I feel is probably where I'm going to focus a majority of my efforts until I can get them under a, a blanket loan and use that to re- refinance and start to move into commercial. Just because the more of these homes that you do, there is a management burden that that increases exponentially. So if I can get the same... You know, I, right now I have 12 doors. If I can get the same 12 doors in one asset, be a lot more easy, a lot easier to manage than, you know, six homes, you know? So that is probably where I'm going to be going. I know this year I'm not buying any real estate this year. I'm taking this year and I'm riding through this, this interest craze (laughs) at the moment. Um, 
but I'm taking it this year and I'm completely uh, redoing the financial systems of my business uh, of real estate to where everything is positioned more for scalability because I've built my business systems to accommodate what I have. But when you look at it from a scalability factor, it's, it's just not all that scalable. So I'm retuning a lot of things behind the scenes that way come 2024, then we could start to, to really pick up the pace because with each one of these, it just, it creates a snowball. And with each new home, that snowball grows faster and bigger. So I'm trying to be ready for 2024 because then, then we'll be moving. We're going to buy a few more homes and hopefully get into commercial. Okay. How do you, how do you find these deals right now? And, and previously, how were you finding them? So all of my deals have been off of the MLS, save for the one vacation home. Uh, that one, that, that one was a private deal that I bought from a family member. With, the, with that exception, it, it's all on the MLS, looking through Zillow uh, and having a great team of people around me to say like, hey, this is actually a pretty good deal. You know, you could do a small value add here. You know, you, you can do, you know, run out the kitchen here and that will really bump up the, the assessed value of this home. So by having a few close advisors, you don't really need, you know, any super secret way of doing it. Blues for me. Okay. And is there a target net worth that you're trying to hit? I'm thinking, honestly, I'd like to hit 15. 15 mil, uh, you know, by the time I retire at 65. However, it's very tempting to try a, a hiatus and take like six months off and see how I like the the whole financially independent retired early thing. Um, but I really like to work. Uh, it's, it's fun. Uh, I'm a project manager by trade, so I get to always do new things and it's still stimulating. So I think 15 million would be a good goal, yet also difficult goal to hit uh, by 65. Good for you. Do you plan on, on partaking in any geo-arbitrage or investing in, in other areas or, or geographies at all as you kind of start growing this portfolio? I, uh, actually, yes. Um, I was talking with one of, my, one of my real estate friends and mentors, and we were talking about basically lifestyle planning and say you want to spend and you're a big skier why not own a home in Vail uh, or Breckenridge in Colorado because then you know you can utilize that as a vacation rental or short-term rental as its prime as as a primary uh, investment but when you want to go there and ski you have a place for that so that has come up in conversation more and more, for sure. Uh, I would have to do a lot more research into the local area to be comfortable doing it. But it's definitely something that I'm entertaining now as opposed to, say, seven years ago, where that wasn't even on the radar of things. So, yeah, my the, the plan is being built for that. It just takes a little bit of time. At what point do you think you would walk away from your day job to pursue real estate for a time? Is that really not a plan? I don't think that's really a plan. I oftentimes thought about 
doing that very thing. And I actually signed up for a few real estate uh, classes and I, I took becoming an agent and all this other fun stuff. And I don't want real estate to be my only primary, you know, wealth generating activity. Having a W-2 makes qualifying for loans a lot easier. Um, I also have a little bit of a disability from the military now, um, so that does help um, as a tertiary income source. But I, I like I like having a W-2 for the moment, so th- there's no plans to only do real estate. I've thought about it a lot, but I just don't think it's for me at this time. How did you decide to take a job post-military career at the place that you're working now? Ooh, this is actually, this is a critical question. I'm, I'm super glad you asked this. So the main reason why I took the job I took is because, one, I can do it remotely, or at least for them, it's a hybrid. So I have to go into the work, you know, one to two days a week. But the cool thing about project management, or and at least how uh, my company does it, is they don't care what I do, what I do day to day. They care about my availability and the deliverables that are produced. So as, a long, as long as I am on top of all of my work deliverables and I've answered everyone's questions even before they asked, they kind of leave me alone. And that gives me the freedom to run the Airbnbs from my home. So just by me working from home, taking my lunch break, you know, going flipping the the Airbnbs I have in my own home, I, I increase my I increase my total revenue by about thirty percent because of that. So knowing that outline and structure, that was a key component to me selecting where I wanted to work and the company I wanted to work for because of that that freedom to as long as my you know as long as everything's being met, I'm able to do what I need to do for my real estate. All right, I have I have two questions. One simple one. Do you have a pension with the military? So I left with 13 years in the military and I don't have a pension uh, with them. But I do have disability that I get. And that's for the rest of my life. Um, it's called permanent and total. So they don't take that away. And the cool thing about disability as opposed to a pension is that disability is tax-free income. And tax-free income is – um, lenders give it a 25% multiplier. So if, say, you get $10,000 as disability, well, they actually look at that as you know $10,250 worth of income. So that actually helps uh, when, when you're trying to apply for a loan or a mortgage. Got it. Very interesting. Okay, so here's my second question. You, you meant, you've, you've mentioned your unique strategy with the military uh, house hacks and the house hacks. Um, have you shared your strategy with anybody else in the military? Like, have you given that tactic to other people that are, uh, you know, like you or might be earlier in their military career. Yeah. Yeah. I, so I was, a, I was a sergeant and then I commissioned twice once in the air force, once into, uh, the army, 
Um, one of those was a mistake. I'll let you guys figure out which one that one was. Um, but every single one of my airmen or soldiers, they knew, they knew my strategy. And I, I made it very open that, Hey, if, if a like me can do this, you know, there's no reason why y'all can't. And it's, and it's literally, you don't have to be into the military to do it, but the military does make my house hacking on steroids uh, strategy very, very lucrative because the military kind of trains you to be or to have a roommate because you're in a, when you go through basic training, you're in this big hall with, you know, 50 of now your new best friends all, you know, sleeping in bunks together. And then when you go into the dorms, you still have a roommate. It's like, hey, this is the same thing. Just now you get more perks because, you know, now you get the the debt pay down, the cash flow, you get the equity, all the benefits of having a home in the same exact lifestyle. Like to me, it's a no brainer. So long way to say I try to make it as well known that this is this is one of the very many strategies within real estate that can help make people successful. Some took to it, some didn't. But that's the cool thing about real estate investing is everyone's different. Everyone has different risk te- temperaments. So they could pick a strategy that's right for them. Awesome, Tim. Well, let's wrap up with some rapid fire questions. What's the most expensive pair of shoes that you purchased? Oh, I was absolutely silly when I was a kid and I bought some uh, $400 pair of um, Hugo Boss single, single monk strap cap toe shoes. I will never do that again. <laughs> that was dumb. And how much were they? There were four hundred dollars. I thought I was big baller McGee, um, and I can I can afford such a thing now. Like I still I still own them a decade later. But it's it's a reminder that you know there's better ways to deploy that capital than buying some cool shoes. Okay, what about the most expensive meal out that you paid for? Mm, probably say around a hundred bucks. I'm not that big of a. Oh, actually, I take that back. The most expensive meal out was probably four or five hundred dollars. Um, I took, I took my platoon out to eat, uh, for, for breakfast and I bought the meal for all of them. And that is to this day, the most rewarding meal I've done because, or I've had, because I was able to, that was on my bucket list. As weird as that sounds, uh, just to buy a meal for all of my troops. Okay. That was what, really fun. What about the most expensive car that you purchased? So that is the current car I have right now. And uh, so I drive a Tesla Model Y, and that's around $50,000. Um, I try to have things that are integrated into my uh, real estate. So by, by providing, by having an electric car and by, you know, having the need for power within your homes, uh, that, that gets to be a tax deduction, or it can be at least. Okay. What about the uh, most expensive vacation or experience that you pay for? Mm, that's a hard one. So that that's something that I don't really uh, put a lot of value in. Uh, most of my vacations were paid for by Uncle Sam, uh, going to like Japan, Thailand, Philippines, things like that. I'd probably say, you know, just traveling over to the next state over and running a ultra marathon. So. Uh, Four or five hundred bucks, maybe. <laughs> Not that much. Just go to the next state over and run an ultra marathon as my uh, vacation. All right. <laughs> hey, I got one coming up in eight days, and <laughs> I'm glad we're having this this uh, recording now, as opposed to like a week and a half from now. Yeah. Uh, I I'll be dead. <laughs> awesome. 
What is a, a key lesson that you've learned from childhood? Uh, from childhood, um, discipline, I, I think, is what it comes down to because you will be along the path of financial freedom. You're going to be tempted to spend your uh, spend your hard-earned money on useless. Um, don't do that. You know the fancy term is lifestyle creep. For me, keep it to a minimum. Um, and discipline that I learned as a childhood or in my childhood has definitely paid that forward. Okay. How do you get ahead in life? For me, that's the easiest one. Um, be the dumbest one in the room. <laughs> be the dumbest one in the room. Uh, surround yourself by amazing people um, whose ambitions and goals are just wild. And just hang on for the ride because surrounding yourself with excellence, excellence can only tolerate excellence. So if you're around excellent people, you'll either become excellent or you won't be around those people. Uh, so that's what I would say. It, it's all about the teams, all about uh, the people that you surround yourself with, because that's a self-reinforcing social model that you probably want to stay in. Where did your interest in personal finance and investing come from? I would say as a kid, you know, I, I come from pretty humble uh, beginnings. You know, we, we didn't really have... Uh, too much. Uh, my dad went bankrupt at least once, I think twice, uh, when we were growing up, um, just because of you know divorce. He was a single father and uh, trying to raise two kids. So I, I that I think that really imprinted in me a hard lesson that finance is a thing and you have to be on top of it, or else, or else you're going to be playing life on hard mode. And I've played enough video games to know that hard mode's not fun. So okay, do you use a credit card? I do. Yeah. Um, I'm not necessarily a point hacker or credit card hacker. It's just, I just keep on like a cash back at end of the month. Something super simple. I'm not smart enough. Okay. What's a closely held belief that you've recently changed your mind on? I am actually not prepared for that question. Um, I don't think I have an answer. I, I, I think I'm stubborn. I haven't changed my mind on anything. I'm perfect in every way. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) What's the craziest thing you've ever done to earn some money? Uh, to earn some um, uh, So one of my friends, I, I, we were over in uh, the Philippines, and they were like, hey, I'll give you $10 to, to go eat this thing called Baloo. And I was like, oh, okay, I'll take your $10. Well, also, what's a Baloo? And turns out it's a partially fertilized duck egg. Um, and it's absolutely disgusting. I, I can, ooh, I can still taste okay. it. I've had balut too. Oh, so you know the pain. <laughs> well, I used to sell to a lot of Filipino people when I lived in mm-hmm. Wisconsin, and uh, they would bring me lumpia, and they'd bring me other thing called pancit, which is like also delicious. But then once in a while, they'd bring they'd bring balut, or I'd be like, "Where's my balut?" And they would all laugh because they knew. But one one person took that like seriously, and then they brought me balut, and I was in the position of you know, do I eat this or not? <laughs> did you? I well, I, I guess he did, right? <laughs> I did. I did. And it was uh, exactly as bad as it sounded. Yeah. <laughs> and how much did you make from One that? Uh, that was $10. I don't think the ROI was worth it. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. I agree. Wow. Jesus, what are... like, it, it's always on like amazing rate or, you know, like they have that on like the reality shows is when you're, you know, supposed to eat something gross. Yeah, yeah. It, it crunches, but it squishes. There's feathers, but you're also <laughs> spitting beaks out. It's it, it, it's a thing. <laughs> I will definitely make sure I steer clear. 
What are some of the mistakes that you've made that you've cautioned others against? Uh, uh, that's, that's easy. Um, don't buy expensive cars, uh, because whatever you think that they're worth, they're not. And it, it, it definitely, uh, will retard your financial plans going forward and, you know, have a plan. When I first started out, I had a inkling of a plan, but at the same time, I was in my early twenties, you know, with my first actual real job. So I went out and I bought a cool car and, I thought I was, you know, the bee's knees driving around, you know, in an Audi. And, and really, I was just acting the fool. Um, I, I started out $60,000 in debt. And I tell, I told every single one of my troops that I was like, don't be me. I am, I am the example of what not to do. So I caution everyone out that and they still do it. <sighs> what are uh, your final words of advice for somebody who's just starting out? If you're just starting out. Read a bunch of books, um, find a team, find a group of people who share the same mindset and goals with you and hold on to that. The team and the people may change, but that ideology and that goal set and mindset won't change. So keep with that. It'll adjust. But if you have a goal and you're driven, surround yourself with uh, like-minded individuals and you'll be shocked to see what happens. Awesome. That's Tim with the million or with the net worth of just around a million dollars. Thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. I really appreciated this. Thanks for listening to the Millionaires Unveiled podcast with Jace Mattinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website, millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.